CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the February 1st edition of Political Rewind. Hard to believe we're already one month into 2023. I guess when you get to be my age, time really does speed by very, very quickly. I'm very happy that you're all with us for the show today. We have so much to talk about, and so I want to get right to the panel, introduce everybody, and begin our conversation. It's Wednesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Greg Bluestein, who's not only, of course, political reporter for the AJC, but also is a political analyst for NBC's various platforms. And I don't know, Greg, you've probably got three other things you're doing. You've got your podcast, Politically Georgia, which you do a couple times a week, at least for the AJC. And you're joining us, as you often do, from your car. My my moving office, my Honda Accord right outside the Capitol and City Hall because I've got uh, a couple things going on in both buildings later today. Okay, well, we'll look forward to your reporting on, on whatever those things are. Margaret Coker is back with us. She's the editor-in-chief of The Current, which is an online nonprofit uh, uh, news site that uh, operates out of Savannah. Margaret, we're always glad to have you on the show. How are you doing? Well, thanks. Um, Savannah is a, a bright, sunny 70 degrees today. Oh, wow. I'll be down there as soon as possible. Matt Brown joins us. Uh, he is a democracy reporter for The Washington Post based here in Atlanta. Matt, how are you doing? Good morning, all. I'm doing pretty good today. And uh, complementing this terrific panel of journalists is what I, the man I say is absolutely the dean of political science professors, not just in Georgia, but in the Southeast in general, uh, Professor <clears> Charles <throat> Bullock. Chuck, as always, we're glad to have you with us from Athens. How are you? Chuck, do you hear me okay? We've been having a little trouble with uh, communicating with Chuck today, so um, I, I know that Chase McGee will work on yeah. uh, looping him in. Oh, you are there? You there now, Chuck? Do we have you? Yeah, apparently I am. Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> I I just said I'm very happy that you are with us today. Thanks so much for joining us from Athens, uh, Greg Lucy. Let's Bill. let's start with uh, the news that broke late yesterday. Um, less than two weeks ago, we had the shooting incident at the site of the Atlanta Police Training, the proposed site of the Atlanta Police Training Center in which a uh, state trooper was uh, seriously wounded, in which one of the protesters who has been, who had been living at the, in the uh, forest where the center is going to uh, be constructed eventually, uh, was shot and killed. Um, and then we had violence over the weekend in demonstrations uh, in downtown. And on our show last Monday, um, Michael Thurman, who is this DeKalb County CEO, of course, and who is deeply involved in the decision-making process 
of whether to grant the permits to begin the process of actually building the site um, because the site is in DeKalb County, although it's owned by the city of Atlanta. Uh, Thurman said to us, look, there are serious environmental considerations. We have a citizens committee which has been looking at this. Um, I want to make sure before we sign off on this that we have worked out all of the issues that we see uh, need to be taken care of. Yesterday, the news is uh, Thurman and Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens signed an agreement. They're moving forward. Yes? Yeah, this was a major development. Uh, they approved what they call land disturbance permits, which allows the construction of the public safety center, which critics call Cop City, to go forward. Uh, and this was after they uh, uh, struck a deal with uh, you know not only the county and the city, but also the citizen review panel uh, to make some environmental uh, accommodations, you know, a bigger buffer, um, no more explosive range, um, you know, answering some of the criticisms, but of course, not all of them. The opponents of this project say they don't want Cop City anywhere in their view. Um, one, one, one protester told the AJC, we don't want one tree cut down. We don't want one blade of grass stepped over. We don't want, want one drop of pollution in that river. So this controversy is not going anywhere. There's supposed to be some protests, um, some more protests in the coming weeks. But as we stand right now, um, city officials said that there was no protesters in the woods right now. So this project is going forward. Okay. So yes, um, we know this is not, this is angered. Uh, those people who are vehemently against this uh, site going forward, whether it's on environmental grounds or their uh, belief that the center will just militarize even more uh, the police who are trained there. Let's listen and then bring in the rest of the panel. First to what uh, Mayor Dickens said uh, yesterday when they signed the agreement. The misinformation has gone far enough. This is a fire and police and community training facility. This will be a place where community policing, where collaboration between fire and police uh, can happen, and also where uh, all the things that in 2020, the nation, including this city, uh, including this former city council member, called for additional training, community-based training. This is where that can happen. And so this uh, process will take place. We'll develop this center. There'll be meeting spaces for the community. This is where your community and neighborhood watch programs will, will learn uh, uh, how to uh, keep your neighborhood safe and things that we can do together. This is where we act out uh, the things that we wanted to see in de-escalation de training and community access uh, to the police department and fire department. So I think that um, when you tell the truth about this, this is a collaborative effort as to how the city can then and move forward with um, the community-based policing that the community wants. Uh, Matt, of course, all this plays out against the backdrop of the horrific video that we all saw of the police beating to death Tyree Nichols, and, and, and it has raised more concerns among those who are uh, against this facility uh, about how police do their work and how this center may uh, uh, train them. Dickens makes the point that he believes this center, in fact, will ameliorate the kind of issues that the Tyree Nichols uh, incident raised. Yes? 
Yeah, it's really interesting to see the way that Dickens was framing it there is this cop city potentially being a solution to um, issues of, you know, violent crime in Atlanta and, and police brutality more broadly. And I think it's especially interesting that he framed it that way, not just given the, the brutal and senseless killing of, of Tyree Nichols recently, but also the way that this um, facility has been framed in the past. For instance, when um, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms originally um, talked about buying this um, facility and really constructing this, she talked about it largely in a framing of boosting the morale, retention, and recruitment of public safety personnel like police. Um, and the, the framing of it alongside, you know, fire and other um, public servants was not at the forefront of the conversation at the time. But that was a period when it was very clear that at the top of mind for Atlanta officials and leaders was to um, curtail violent crime and to, and to really answer that urge and, and need it amongst people. Now, obviously, the political climate has changed very significantly for um, Mayor Dickens here. And the protesters have made very clear that they don't want anything to be constructed on this property, which I think opens up broad questions that we have about, well, how do we get the type of of safe, secure, and protected society that we're actually looking for here. And, and that's not just something that is about Cop City necessarily, but it's about the broader debate over how we um, keep our streets um, safe, um, clean, and and well-guarded by, by people. And that's a much broader conversation than what we're having right now. That is such an important point. Thank you for that. Uh, Margaret, jump in. Yeah, I, I don't know that uh, that regular people who never um, never interact with the police understand how enmeshed all of our law enforcement um, agencies are in Georgia. I mean, here in coastal Georgia, we have county police, city police, sheriff's departments, all who come in in different uh, different capacities to handle both minor issues like traffic accidents, but then also major incidents like drug busts. And the idea that everyone will be trained up on the same standards in that larger network of law enforcement seems to be a net positive for communities. You won't have a laggard um, in, in, at some point that that where and the laggards are definitely where abuses are more prone to happen. At, you know, at the same time, I think that for the rest of us in Georgia, having a having a training facility for law enforcement that institutes best practices that do exist for for law enforcement, that's going to be a beacon for for those of us who who don't live in the metro area. I think that law enforcement agencies here will have somewhere to look if they want to improve their own community policing, if they want to improve their own standards of de-escalation. Sometimes um, a beacon on the hill is going to be um, a net positive for all of us. So so I would just add to that. Um, I that I hope at a certain point uh, the public has uh, gets information about what it means to practice, to have best practices being taught at this training. What are those best practices? That transparency, I think, would be incredibly useful to all of us. Chuck Bullock, Bullock this also plays out uh, around the back, against the background of Governor Kemp, who's made it clear that part of his agenda this year is getting tougher on crime. Um, and, um, and, you know, he's getting, he's going to get support, I think, bipartisan support for some of what he wants to do, because nobody wants violent crime to continue to be a major issue in uh, the state. But nevertheless, uh, again, when you look at the Tyree Nichols incident, um, you've got to put everything into that context as well. How, what do you think about uh, how Governor Kemp may want to reframe some of the way he talks about law enforcement uh, right now. You know, the uh, crime issue was an important one for Republicans who are running 
back last fall. And it gets reinforced almost on a daily basis because it seems like almost every night on the evening news there's a report of a shooting somewhere around Metro Atlanta. This also then plays into another bigger issue, and that is the whole cessation movement there in in Buckhead. And then one other element that's related to this, and I'm trying not to repeat the fine points that are made by both Matt and Margaret, and that is what we're seeing here is nimbyism. You know, people don't want this in their backyard. So even if they might say that, yes, it would be great to have a police training facility, please don't put it anywhere near me. And, of course, that then plays into a urban-rural split we have in Georgia, where urban rural areas are desperate to get any kinds of things which are going to bring in employment and would you know, love to have a facility like this, where urban folks, yeah, they're pretty happy where they're living and they don't want to see anything change or disturb. So a, a number of different dimensions that circle around this that probably have some implications for it. Um, Greg, uh, there is a jobs component to this agreement um, that they're going to offer jobs to uh, people in the community. We don't know all the details of that yet. But I'd, I'd like, Greg, to play uh, what Mike Thurman said. I, I pointed out he was on the show last week, and he laid out his conditions for signing the agreement. Let's listen to what he said yesterday. The land development plan and, and process is primarily a process to protect adjacent landowners as well as the environment. That was why this took 11 months to objectively do the analysis and the research within human uh, understanding to protect that resource. And know this, DeKalb County will continue to be a, a aggressive and engaged steward of the South River Forest. Uh, this is the beginning of a process and not the end. So, so Greg, uh, Thurman is uh, addressing primarily the concerns of environmentalists who don't want to see the forest uh, further uh, stripped of trees. Uh, he was worried about uh, runoff and pollution in the river. That, that's been his primary focus. Yeah, and this speaks to the challenge for the advocates of this public safety center because the protesters are all over the map. You know, there are some that are environmentalists who... Um, you know, as I said earlier, who said they don't want one blade of gra- grass trampled upon. There are some who are part of, you know, the the defund the police movement or who are just critical of more funding of, of public safety efforts. And, and then, of course, as Dr. Bullock said, there's some who are nimbyism, who just don't want um, any any such facility in their backyards. And so uh, Commissioner uh, Executive Thurman is speaking to, to to the environmentalists right there. You know, this memorandum of, of understanding says there'll be double erosion control. It says that um, Atlanta plans to plan to plant 100 hardwood trees for every specimen tree impacted by construction, that there'll be new buffers, there'll be less explosives used on site, um, less ammunition. Um, but that still won't answer all the complaints of the environmentalists and frankly, of the folks who don't want any more funding for law enforcement included in this. Okay, um, obviously we're going to watch how that unfolds. But, but uh, uh, while we're talking about law enforcement, uh, Matt, um, we, we know that Memphis has now uh, has now decided they will disband the so-called Scorpion Unit, which is a uh, a hard-hitting uh, team out in the streets fighting against crime in aggressive ways, which is what happened, obviously, in the Tyree Nichols incident. I didn't know until I read a story about it this morning that there are Scorpion units, named Scorpion units in other cities, and that Fulton County Sheriff Department 
has a scorpion unit as well. They're talking now about changing the name of that unit. I hope they're also looking at whether the activities of that unit need to be evaluated in terms of their aggressiveness, Matt. Right, absolutely. And and the officer actually, just to give another Georgia connection to this um, horrible incident in Memphis, was also, who oversaw the Scorpion unit in, in Tennessee, was also a um, former Atlanta police officer as well. So the, this, this story of how this type of practice has spread not just all across the Southeast, but the country, and how when we engage and interrogate questions of how we police and whether or not it's a good idea to have certain units that are especially determined to go into the most violent communities and say that we are going to give you more leeway to police people, if that's an effective way of doing this. That is basically the theory of these Scorpion units, is saying that we are going to give a broader leash to these officers because they're putting themselves in ostensibly more danger, and they're going to get more results. And it is true, a lot of these Scorpion units have confiscated more guns, they have arrested more people, but they've also killed a lot more innocent people like Tyree Nichols in the process. And, And that question of really interrogating what are the ways that we are allowing policing to be done, what are the ways that police are going to be feel, you know, safe and engaged in these processes. That's stuff that oftentimes happens at the most local of levels and is not something that while we're watching in Congress, you know, debates over large legislation about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for instance, being reengaged. This is really a question that's happening in cities like Atlanta, in cities like Memphis. And we have to ask ourselves and our neighbors, how do you want policing and law enforcement to be enacted on your streets. It's not a question that's going to get enacted necessarily at even the level that um, Governor Kemp is talking about here. This is going to have to happen literally block by block, um, neighborhood by neighborhood, in terms of whether we want this to be the type of society that we have and the type of ways that we resolve our problem, our most intractable issues. Margaret and and then Chuck, uh, I'm glad that Matt mentioned the uh, uh, bill that Congress Uh, has looked at in the aftermath of George Floyd, uh, the House did, in fact, the U.S. House, passed a measure that would look at issues like how police are trained, look at certain practices that police departments across the country have used, like chokeholds that perhaps ought to have federal prohibitions put in place, and any any number of other ways in which uh, uh, the uh, Congress uh, hopes to transform the way in which police Uh, interact with communities that they are policing. Um, The original bill did pass the House. It stalled in the Senate. Now there's a major push to bring it back. But the chances of a Republican House and a Democratic Senate coming to some agreement on this seem like they're slim to none, Margaret. Absolutely. Slim to none is a good way to put it. And even if we can all agree that that we should have higher standards of training, I don't know that the federal government can solve the problem that we see in our city and county police departments, which is retention and recruitment, you know, routinely um, for years now. Uh, in uh, across coastal Georgia, I'm sure across the state, um, our police departments are routinely down 10 to 20 to 30 percent of of what they need in order to just maintain um, what they think is a is a minimum amount of public safety and law enforcement across our communities. I don't know where you find people of a younger generation who decide that they're going to make this their their life's mission is to try and help 
um, help keep neighborhoods safe. I don't know where you go when you're trying to chase uh, someone with a little bit of experience to come in and train up the younger people uh, in your police departments when those older, um, more experienced folks are being headhunted out of your county to other um, other metropolitan areas because everyone is chasing um, very scarce talent. At the same time, you know, I, I remember, you know, days gone by when um, when there was a common understanding that the best way to have community policing is to have police actually live in those communities. I have no idea how you recreate that as a standard when, again, um, you're chasing a really, really scarce talent. But neighbors neighbors will tell they tell us all the time as journalists what they think is going to help make them safer um and police uh, i think here in savannah do a pretty good job of of listening to people block by block you know precinct captains are incredibly well regarded here that doesn't always lead to um a decrease of crime it doesn't lead to more solved um uh felony or or misdemeanor cases but trying to build that trust from the ground up rather than from washington is where we need to be well, and that speaks to what Matt was suggesting, that, you know, the, the Congress might be able to try to pass something that's federalized, but the fact of the matter is you're looking at each community individually. Chuck, before we leave the subject completely, um, uh, talking about how we deal with violence, violent crime, you, you certainly remember that we have gone back and forth on this issue in the state of Georgia. When Zell Miller was first elected governor, uh, he went immediately uh, to the uh, get uh, tough on crime position that in the early 90s was popular, not just in Georgia, but at the federal level. Um, remember that in the Clinton administration in 92, 93 uh, did the same thing. So Zell Miller had two strikes and you're out, um, a Democrat. We come up to more recent times. Republican Governor Nathan Deal says it's time for criminal justice reform. He wins national acclaim for uh, trying to see that uh, that the black that that the black population, particularly of state prisons, was lowered uh, substantially. And now we have Republican Brian Kemp swinging back toward the get tough on crime message, Chuck. Right. And what we've seen is that some of these ideas, uh, they sound real good when they're proposed, but they don't necessarily work out. You mentioned uh, Zell's uh, two strikes and you're out. He also, remember, emphasized boot camps, and that was supposed to you know, deal with young individuals before they got too deeply into crime. And the assessment of that was that they really didn't work. So to some extent, our policymakers are stumbling around trying to find re you know, actions that will actually succeed. And I assume that I'm not working without very good data. Uh, we, you talk about the swing. So yes, uh, doing away with bond for for many uh, minor offenses is another popular idea. Uh, we see some DAs, particularly here in the area where I live, who are saying they're not going to spend resources prosecuting certain kinds of crimes, and there's then pushback against that. So. We have lots of policymakers who are very much concerned about crime, and they're certainly hearing from their constituents who feel they are victims or potential victims to what seems to be often random criminal events. So the public is saying, do something. But uh, I get the impression, this is not an area in which I work, but I get the impression that uh, this doing something is uh, often not well based upon facts that would indicate that doing a particular action will indeed reduce crime. 
All right, Chuck Bullock, you get the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. Lots more to talk about. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Charles Bullock, Margaret Coker, Matthew Brown, and Greg Bluestein join me for today's political rerun. Just quickly, Greg, let's talk. We had special elections in legislative districts uh, yesterday, and the headline, I think it's fair to say, was that uh, Cherie Ralston, the widow of David Ralston, who died so unexpectedly late last year, November, uh, lost her race to uh, uh, a banker up in Blue Ridge, Johnny Chastain, and it wasn't even close. He had 53% to her 47%. She outraced him. She had Governor Kemp's support in the race, but uh, it just wasn't enough for her. So there will not be a Ralston presence in the legislature for the first time in, what, well over a dozen years. Yeah, there won't. I mean, look, David Ralston's team is still uh, surrounding Speaker John Burns, so a lot of his top aides are still at the Capitol. But no, Sheree Ralston will not be among them. Um, look, upsets happen, especially when you have these low turnout affairs when just a, you know, a few thousand people vote in these runoffs. Certainly, Sheree Ralston had the money, the endorsements, and, and the name recognition. But Johnny Chastain, you know, folks up there in North Georgia would always remind us, do not count Johnny Chastain up. Out, he's a community banker. He had a deep web of support there as well, of course. All right. Um, Also, there was an election down in Moultrie where Sam Watson, who'd been serving in the House, won a Senate seat. And uh, the race for his House seat, which he vacated to make his Senate race, uh, was won by Charles uh, Cannon. So and then there's a runoff uh, for another seat. And I don't even want to get into runoffs today uh, because we have too many runoffs and we talk too much about them. But I did want to give everybody information about those special elections yesterday. Margaret, we're talking about um, environmental matters, among other things, in the Atlanta Police Training Facility story. Um, And there's a huge environmental story that continues to unfold down at at the Okefenokee Swamp, where, um, where there is a mining company that wants to begin mining titanium within about a three-mile area of the swamp itself. There are many environmentalists who say this could do irreparable damage to the swamp itself. Uh, The company has brought in their own experts who say, no, not a problem at all. And this whole matter is now in the hands of the State Environmental Protection Division, which seems to be taking its time uh, on this matter right now. Well, in fact, there there are a couple of developments that we've been um, monitoring and reporting on here at The Current. One is that the EPD seems to have accepted the science that the company has brought um, to them that refutes the environmental concerns. Um, 
the company says that uh, there, whatever mining finally happens or proposed mining finally happens, the watershed levels um, will will won't be affected by this. Um, the Okefenokee Swamp, that's been called, you know, the lungs of the southeast, the lungs of Georgia. You know, this is an incredibly important and nuanced point. Um, at the same time, there are ongoing legal suits uh, that environmentalists have have raised against the company, also against the U.S. Army of Engineers. There's a concerted effort both at the federal um, level with our senators and at the state level to try and get this stopped. The EPD, as our reporter Mary Landers has pointed out in a story from last week, you know, has been pretty inconsistent um, in its oversight of Twin Pines, the company that wants to mine. Um, Mary found out that while EPD is uh, has been over you know, overlooking and accepting of the science. They've been incredibly lax at forcing the company to actually comply with state law in terms of the permits the company needs to eventually mine. And the company has uh, misrepresented itself with its permitting, the administrative process of this over and over again. The EPD seems to be um, ready to, you know, shake a finger and say, tisk tisk, let's move on. But if that's the level or lack of oversight over simple paperwork, what kind of, uh, what can we expect in terms of oversight when it comes to actual um, nitty gritty scientific and environmental concerns? It's a lot of major questions and the EPD is on the hot seat right now. So EPD has opened a public comment period that I think, what, 60 days uh, for public comment. Um, but also, Greg Bluestein, uh, we now have a bill in the, in the House, the state House, uh, which could not stop uh, this mine from moving forward, but would certainly... Uh, if it passes, stop any further uh, exploitation by by mine companies of land within a certain radius around the swamp, right? Yeah, not just any bill, a bipartisan bill with dozens of Republican yeah. supporters as well. Uh, we asked Governor Kemp about it yesterday. He, you know, he's not taking a stance on it. He's he's in a wait and see mode. Um, but this is this is a sort of coalition that could actually pass this sort of measure. And as you said, it wouldn't stop this current project, but it would basically uh, bar the EPD from modifying, renewing mining permits after July 1st on that trail ridge system. So this would this would basically prevent any sort of expansion. Without Just a Chuck Bullock, uh, thank you. Uh, Chuck, and then Matt, if you want to weigh in, you're welcome to. Uh, this is just my general observation. I, when I first moved to Georgia, uh, I went down to the swamp within the first few months of coming here because I'd heard so much about it. It is truly one of the great wonders of the world. Paddling through the Okefenokee Swamp um, and, and going into the sea prairies where you see every species of bird you can possibly imagine, beautiful flora and fauna, not to mention a lot of alligators. <laughs> Chuck, it, it really is an extraordinary place. And... I used to say to people how lucky I am that I've gotten to Georgia where we have such an extraordinary natural resource, no matter what some of my northern friends said about the state that I have lived in for a long time now. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so, John, yeah, we, we would hope that it would be well protected and that nothing that could da permanently damage it would be done. I think we'd also hope that whatever decision comes out of this is going to be based upon good sound scientific data, and it's not going to be driven uh, by political considerations or by economic considerations. And it's maybe naive to say that, but uh, I think that's what we would, would hope would be the, res the way decisions are made on this and on other 
uh, issues which threaten some of our natural resources. Uh, Matt, you want to jump in on this and then Margaret again? Yeah, I just I would just say that I find the particular policy regime around this very interesting that in other states like Arizona, um, the, their state their state regulatory agencies have a lot more control and say necessarily over how they regulate their water supplies or their natural beauties than we do here in Georgia, for instance. And, and just comparing and contrasting what say you know the federal government might have in this versus how um, local local and state authorities have, I think is something that maybe Georgians want to um, you know advocate for to empower ourselves a bit. Margaret, give us the last word on this. Yeah, I think it's it's um, very uh, worthy to underscore here that unlike Cop City and the protesters there who are calling themselves eco-warriors and, and have this persona of being on the very far left end of the political spectrum, this is a case with the Okie that there are red-blooded Republican uh, conservationists who um, are against the mining, just as there are traditional environmental groups here in Georgia against the mining. So it is a rare bipartisan issue, as um, Greg mentioned. And together with those forces, there, there this actually might be um, um, both a dynamic and interesting good news story in terms of how civically engaged um, our citizens are. All right, we'll watch how that unfolds. Um, Greg Bluestein, to change subjects, um, your colleague, Tia Mitchell, uh, wrote a piece uh, a couple days ago in, in which she uh, talked about the four members, four of 14 members of Georgia's congressional delegation who do not live in their districts. Lucy McBath uh, represents seventh, lives in the sixth. Rich McCormick represents now the sixth, lives in the ninth. Andrew Clyde, uh, lives in the 10th, he, so he's 10 miles away from his district. And David Scott, the Democrat, lives in the 5th while he represents the 13th. Uh, and apparently, there were a lot of people who reacted to this, readers, and were very angry about this. We should point out that it is perfectly acceptable. There is nothing that prevents a member of the U.S. House from living outside her or his district as long as they live in the state. But people don't like it when they hear about this sort of thing. They don't like it. And they're also surprised by it because, you know, folks forget that you don't exactly what you just said. You don't have to live in your U.S. house. You have to live in the state of your U.S. senator, but you don't have to live in your U.S. house district. Certainly it's come up in campaigns before, uh, most notably, uh, to me at least, the 2017 special election up in the 6th District in Georgia when John Ossoff famously lived, you know, not not far from the district, but not in the district. And Karen Handel pummeled him over and over uh, for that. Um, and it was one of the reasons, factors that she credited with her victory over Ossoff way back when. Um, but also, you know, some of these lawmakers are victims of uh, of redistricting, right? Uh, Lucy McBath is that great example. She lived in, in her district until she was drawn out of it. And then she ran in the neighboring 7th District because her current district was drawn to be unwinnable for a Democrat. Others like David Scott have lived outside their district for decades, for years. So, um, you know, it, it, it always confuses, uh, you know, and surprises a lot of people when we write those stories. It's happening in other states as well. There are dozens of, of federal lawmakers all over, House members all over the nation who don't live in their districts. Um, but, you know, their argument is pretty much boils down to we, we still represent our constituents, even if we don't live within those boundaries. 
Yeah, Matt, you're a democracy reporter for the Washington Post, so I'd love to hear your your take on this issue. But there are constituents who say, if you don't live in the district, how can you possibly know what I'm dealing with and and what I go through? But federal law uh, isn't is is it federal law that mandates you have to live in the state but not in the district, and it's not going to change in any case. Right, exactly. And some states have more restrictive policies on this. I believe that in New York, you do actually have to live in a district, but that's New York saying that. So maybe, again, these are the ways that we construct our democracy. So there's there's no limits in the Constitution or in federal law that says that this is the case. And in Georgia, this is how we've decided it. So I think that in these four instances, it's oftentimes, you know, as you said, very important to just look at the context here. In the, in the case of Rich McCormick and Lucy McBath, they, they very closely basically almost do live in the districts that, that they were in. It's just a question of redistricting. Whereas, you know, the cases of Andrew Clyde and David Scott, for instance, they, they do look different. And I've at least seen that a lot of folks have complained about those a lot more significantly because David Scott is living basically in the heart of Atlanta when he's representing um, a lot of constituents who live just outside of the city, many of whom have often been priced out of living in the city. And Andrew Clyde lives very far away from, or he lives out just outside of um, Athens, basically, is what is what we're looking at here when he mm-hmm. is representing Northeast Georgia. So the, the question there is, do people feel that they actually have a connection to their represented leaders? Do they actually have trust in these um, people to continue to have their best interests if they themselves are not actually having a stake in their residency and living in in those places? Again, this is democracy. People can decide that that just because someone doesn't live in the district, they actually still do have full faith and confidence in their ability to represent their interests. That might not be the primary thing on voters' minds. This could change, uh, you know, from district to district on in terms of how we decide that we want to do this. And then more substantively, I think that in the Georgia state legislature, if this is something that the legislature, that the legislators there want to actually take something up and, and pass stronger you know, requirements here, that is something that Georgia is able to do. But that's all, again, just how we decide as a democracy, how we want to structure ourselves. So if the people of Georgia Chuck- don't like the situation, they can do something about it. I apologize that I jumped in there for a sec. Um, Chuck, I think that one of the words that Matt used that really matters here is trust. You know, there's so much mistrust in government as it is right now. We don't think that our elected leaders are doing the work we wanted that we want them to. And and although as there are all sorts of practical reasons why we have people living outside the district, you can understand why there's a dissonance for some of those people who say, what the heck is my government doing to help me? Well, exactly. Yeah, I think there's also a difference between whether you're running for an open seat, as Greg mentioned, the Ossoff Handle case, which probably is harder if you're not in the district. But once you become an incumbent and you've got that name recognition, then uh, if you're slightly outside of the district, probably your voters are willing to accept it. And again, if they aren't, then the the, the result could be just vote against them. Don't reelect these people if you think it's important that you have someone who lives in the district. We've got this long history here in Georgia, and I guess as the the old member of the panel, I'm the one who should go back and mention that for a number of years, about 25 years ago, probably the most liberal member of our delegation was Cynthia McKinney, and a very conservative Republican was John Linder, who was very much very close to Newt Gingrich. And for a number of years, John Linder actually lived in and was represented by Cynthia McKinney. So we have a long history of this. And one of the things that uh, I don't think the legislature can change it. I think uh, you'd have to change the Constitution to require that individuals live in their district. So in, for for Georgia state legislators, not only do you have to live in the district, you have to have been there for a year, which meant that we saw a number of instances last year where 
new lines were drawn and a member could not move into the new district because there was not time. So it's quite different what we see and expect of our state legislators as opposed to our members of Congress. All right. Um, thank you, uh, Chuck Bullock, for uh, your final comments on that subject. Let's get to our uh, last break in the show. We'll be back. There are a couple of stories I really am eager to talk to the panel about. We'll do that in a moment. Greg Bluestein, Donald Trump was out on the campaign trail over the weekend, small-scale events in New Hampshire and South Carolina. And even as he gets his campaign underway, there's a lot of buzz in the evangelical Christian community that uh, Trump may not have the overwhelming support from them this time that he has had in the past. And that became a question that Ralph Reed, a Georgia boy, Grew up in Athens out uh, Chuck Bullock's way, who was uh, uh, one of the, the real leaders of the evangelical Christian movement. Um, uh, he, was, he was asked about this on PBS NewsHour, and I think it's interesting to listen to just a little bit of what he said as he made it clear he's not so sure whether Trump is, is going to get the support that he's had in the past. There's great affection for President Trump. But there is such an embarrassment of riches. There is in part because of him. There is such a deep bench. I mean, let's remember three of the most compelling candidates served in his cabinet. So this is not a bad thing. And there's nothing wrong with a healthy primary. And from our standpoint, we think the more candidates who go after these voters, uh, the better off we will be as as long as we can unify when it's over. Greg, uh, when uh, Ralph says his, uh, from his point of view, he's talking about the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Um, what your thoughts on this? Yeah, look, obviously, President, former President Trump has not cleared the field whatsoever. And we now have the news that former ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, is likely to announce in a couple of weeks, formally announced out in South Carolina, that she's going to run for president. Um, you know, many others could follow her. There's all, all sorts of rumbling about about a dozen other candidates. Um, but I was at Ralph Reed's group, Faith and Freedom Coalition. I was at their luncheon a couple of days ago in downtown Atlanta, and I talked to a number of conservative activists there as well from Georgia. And they echo what Ralph Reed said. They echo what we're hearing from a lot of politicians beyond uh, beyond the evangelical community as well, saying that they want a competitive primary, that they are not endorsing Governor Kemp. Certainly, I'm sorry, endorsing Donald Trump. Certainly Governor Kemp <laughs> will not be endorsing Donald Trump. Statewide elected officials haven't uh, gone out there and endorsed Donald Trump. He has a handful of early endorsements nationally. But here in Georgia, um, there is a, a sort of another layer of skepticism around his candidacy, in part because, of course, he backed all those failed GOP uh, challengers to Governor Kip, to Chris Carr, to Brad Raffensperger, to John King, uh, who easily swept to victory in November. Chuck Bullock, when uh, Ralph Reed says there are three former members of the administration, he is presumably talking about Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, and Nikki Haley, who, as Greg points out, we now know is going to announce her candidacy in mid-February. By the way, Chuck, add to all that, we have today are uh, seeing stories that are moving that Trump's had some pretty weak fundraising as he's kicked off his campaign. Chuck? Yeah, I think maybe what Ralph is tapping into is a dissonance between the policies of Donald Trump, which 
evangelicals have been very happy with and you know putting new members on the Supreme Court but then also Trump's personal life uh, which is um, again widely pointed out doesn't seem to be in line with evangelicals I and mean, he's not a not a, a churchgoer <laughs> he's clearly not a student of the Bible so if there are indeed going to be these options and what the evangelical community may look at and say yes we can get Trump like policies but we can get a person who comes from our community and someone who, in their lives, lives the life that uh, we would like to see lived. And as a sidelight, if indeed there's going to be this wide-open Republican primary for president, that would certainly be then another reason why it would be wise for Georgia to move to the front of the selection process proposed by the Democratic Party. But it may well be that uh, the Republicans who could be the beneficiary of that in 2024. Um, absolutely. Uh, Margaret, just a personal observation. Those of us who've covered politics in Georgia for a long time know Ralph Reed pretty well. And I've got to say, as I watched him walk the tightrope in this interview, uh, being very, very complimentary of Trump, saying maybe there are other candidates out there, it reminded me of just how smooth Ralph is as a uh, political talker. <laughs> Oh yeah, he he's he's polished with a capital P. Um, he and and I think that he needs to be right now because I'm not sure that he controls the same block of of influence that he once did back in in the Gingrich days, for example. But of course he's a player. Of course he's influential. Of course, uh, you know he he knows he. I mean he has. He has the certainty of his policies, and so he'll be able to stream into the wake of whatever candidate is is um, is is going to um, make him confident that that they'll give him what he wants and his group wants. So he's in the catbird seat um, as always, and um, yeah, let the let the best man or woman win. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating with Nikki Haley apparently setting a date of February 15th to announce her candidacy. I assume it presumably means that other Republicans are going to have to jump in fairly quickly, uh, uh, too. We'll see how that develops. So uh, it could be an interesting Republican primary uh, for 2024. Uh, Matt Brown, uh, I saw a piece that uh, you uh, shared a byline on in The Washington Post uh, about a week or so ago, I think. Um, on the debt ceiling crisis, if that's a fair word to use. Today, Speaker McCarthy meets with President Biden, presumably to talk about whether they can reach some accord on raising the debt ceiling uh, without any kind of significant cuts in spending that Republicans aligned with McCarthy are insisting on. So first of all, um, the debt ceiling, in, in the piece that you wrote, it's been around for quite some time, 1917, something like that, that it was first put in place. We don't have, are you muted, Matt? Yes, I was. I, I apologize for that. Um, yes, the debt ceiling was first created um, in the first time that the United States was significantly actually having deficit spending, which was World War One. So, so that's the the period when Congress at the time basically said, "Well, this is very unusual for us. We're not like the British. We don't always run deficits. So, we're, we want to 
institute some fiscal restraint by basically instituting a, a, a mandatory limit in terms of how much the government can um, actually borrow. And and for most of American history, it's always been um, you know raised and has and our federal debt has not actually been that significant. So so the the explosion of it over the past forty years or so is something that's relatively recent in the grand scheme of American history. Here, I, I think that the the question that we're grappling with today is both the political question of how do we get the Biden administration and Senate Democrats who basically don't see this as an issue that should be negotiated over to be at the same place where House Republicans and, and um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are, where they say that this is an opportunity to um, institute large cuts across the, the board to make sure that we don't actually have these um, large government deficits or this massive amount of government debt in the first place. I, I think that that is the political question of how do we get these two camps together. The economic question, uh, the reality, is that this is going to be happening at a time when we could be potentially defaulting if we do um, continue to hit the debt ceiling and then don't actually are able to pay off our loans. So so the, the question here is, and I have, is why do we as a society constantly want to have this conversation over um, how do we solve our debts, our debts and everything when we're also staring down the financial crisis of the situation? So that's what Biden so and Kevin it, McCarthy are coming to together today. In, in your uh, article, you revive a quote from an earlier Post story um, in which Mark Zandi, who was the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, said that a prolonged impasse over the debt ceiling um, would cost the U.S. economy up to six million jobs wipe out as much as $15 trillion in household wealth and send the unemployment rate surging to roughly 9%. Now, those are really startling numbers, and they're predictions. But the point of that is to say, this affects each and every one of us. Yeah, and it would just be the beginning. Like This is the question with the debt ceiling is... is this is a question of the United States trust in the global economy. It's fundamentally what, when we talk about a default on the debt ceiling, that is what we're debating here, is can the U.S. be trusted to pay back the money that we have borrowed from um, a number of um, um, creditors around the world, including mostly American citizens? Like, that's the thing. When we talk about U.S. government bonds, like, mostly Americans, um, you know, we have those. Our banks have those. And if we can't trust that the U.S. government's actually going to pay those back, then that's going to have reverberations, not just here in the United States, but all around the world. Uh, Greg, uh, you'd think that maybe McCarthy would want to learn from the lessons of Newt Gingrich, who shut down the government uh, and took it on the chin as a result. And then more recently, Ted Cruz doing the same thing. But McCarthy has essentially promised uh, in exchange for becoming speaker that he'd be tough on uh, insisting on cuts. It's not a political winning uh, story for Republicans, though. No, it's real tough. He he made all sorts of concessions that makes his job really, really difficult, as we all talked about. But look, he's he's use, he's looking to use these potential consequences to to force Democrats into a wider debate over taxes and spending and and debt and and, and government jobs and all that. But as Matt said, economists from across the political spectrum have widely warned of catastrophe if this debt ceiling isn't raised. Already, the Treasury Department's taking extraordinary measures, but at some point, they can't do any more. We're almost out of time, but quickly from you, Chuck, and you, Margaret Chuck, the uh, the fact of the matter is, no one would argue that spending is out of control in Washington. I think that's a given as well, yes? 
Yeah, it is. And what it may be is that because of these potential disasters, it may be that uh, President Biden will, will call the Republicans bluff on this, not negotiate. Margaret? In 2011, the uh, U.S. lost its triple A rating for the first time. That is the mm. rate at which uh, we have to pay to order to to pay down our debt and also borrow money. And that Republican-controlled Congress backed off of its cliff very quickly when everybody realized just how drastic and how urgent that was. Margaret Coker, Greg Bluestein, Matt. Brown and Charles Bullock, man, you guys got through a lot of really good issues and handled them uh, so beautifully, gave us a lot of insight. I appreciate that. I know our listeners do, too. We're back tomorrow with a brand new show. And by the way, we're going to take up the uh, AJC's really extraordinary series on dilapidated housing, the ways in which people are living in shoddy apartment construction around Metro Atlanta. That'll be tomorrow's Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.